This episode was recorded on Katapintinga. I pay my respects to the history and culture of this land and all First Nations people. The whole idea of how a city works is just so foreign to me that I don't really want to be there. It just doesn't make sense. I just think it's all wrong. Here, people knows me because it's a small community. If you keep going a community activity, they recognise me. That is pretty nice feeling. You make it sound so easy, but why don't more people live like this? Chooks, 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 chooks. How do we find true meaning and connection in life? I'm on a quest to meet people who have found connection and meaning in their life. People who make time for something that has value and purpose or makes them feel joyful and alive. I'm convinced that through meeting these people, I'll find one thing I can be doing to bring more connection and meaning into my life. So I quit my job, bought a pop-up camping trailer, and I'm heading off on a journey around Australia to see what other people are doing. My name is Kai, and I'm on a journey towards connection. For this episode, I travelled to a town called Penishaw on Kangaroo Island, off the mainland of South Australia. Here, I stayed at John and Rako's home. I wanted to know what living off-grid actually entailed and to start thinking about how I can connect to a more conscious way of living with our natural environment. All right, so, feeling nauseous. Got the ferry over from the mainland to Kangaroo Island and it was only half an hour, but me being typical me, wanted to vomit the whole time because I get really badly seasick. But anyway, I'm off the boat. You can probably hear the road in the background. It is unsealed. There's a hell of a lot of potholes coming up and my camper is not built for these sorts of roads. Apparently the island is the size of Bali, but only has 4,700 residents. I read that on the boat on the way over. Because there's so little residents, I think that's why wildlife flourishes here. First thing I noticed when I arrived on Kangaroo Island is just how clear the water is. And it is a grey, rainy, miserable day, so I would have expected the water to reflect the the grey sky. I really hope it doesn't rain the whole time. I left Sydney three and a half weeks ago, nearly four weeks ago, on my adventure to find what brings people meaning and connection. And I have had one and a half sunny days in that whole time. It's very cold, it's very wet, but It's just starting to get a bit dreary and uninspiring. But the people I've met along the way so far have been inspiring, so I'll keep recharging through the people I meet and hope that one day the sun and I meet again. On my way to see uh, Reiko and John and see how it is that they live off grid, I'm sure I'm going to be reminded just how city I am and just how much better I could probably be doing in order to live in a more sustainable way because I will admit that I'm not doing a great job of that. So yeah, actually, I probably really would love some inspiration to go away realising that actually it's not that hard to be more sustainable and live better. You know, buying environmentally friendly dishwashing liquid is not where it ends. If I was going to be living off grid, This so far looks like the place to do it. Okay, so I pulled up to their house. They're looking out the window because my camper doesn't fit, which is awkward to say the least. Oops, shut up car. 
My name is Reiko Hosokawa. I came from Kyoto, Japan 25 years ago. And now I am living in Kangaroo Island. Island is quite special for me because I like surrounded by water. I like island because you can get a cross wind. Particularly this house we're living now, it's got an outlook. So you can see outside every day. So I'm John Matheson. I was fortunate enough to have been born with two older sisters and two younger sisters in a relatively poor family where mum made practically all of the clothes for the whole family. Dad grew practically all of the food and I got the hand-me-downs from my older sisters. <laughs> so we only met about 15 years ago. We got together fairly quickly after we met and didn't really know very much about each other at all. And it's actually, it came as to me as quite a shock that we had so much in common. We liked camping, we liked gardening, we liked things that I hadn't been doing with my previous wife because she didn't like them. We started camping together and then we felt we wanted to move out of the city. Coming to Kangaroo Island was quite an accident because some colleagues of mine from years ago called me out of the blue and they were on the island, so we came over and visited them and then we started thinking, well, we could live here. And then it took quite a long time to find a property. We just lucked out. We, we weren't even looking at this end of the island. We wanted... I wanted to be isolated, so I wanted to be up the northwestern corner off the tourist tracks. And we looked there for a few years and didn't find anything. And then one day this place popped up on the market and we just decided on the spot we wanted to buy it. We didn't have a um, plan as such, but we had a like sixth sense, what we should do now and quit the job and come mm. here. So didn't have a job for one a year, so we have to watch the penny. So instead of buying seedling mm. so seedling is expensive five dollars each if you buy ten fifty dollars mm. oh maybe i should buy seed so i find a seed and then more sort of happiness and a joy for me from the seed instead of seedling it was a lot of things accident and didn't plan that way and the previous owner introduced a lot of people through the Penishaw community so it's friends now so not just the house came with network we thought we'd make a business here on the island with either buckwheat or alpacas or the something primary produce as a primary producer but quickly I realized it's not it's not easy <laughs> It's just getting out of the money system. I mean, if you don't spend money, you don't need to earn it. And when you think about it, the way people spend money and what they spend it on, do you really, you know, we don't miss eating out because we, particularly Reiko, makes better food than most restaurants anyway. We don't miss going to the movies because we've got a nice TV here. We can stream anything. And all those things that people spend money on, it all adds up. We're not driving. We made a decision to go off the grid simply because we didn't like the way the business model for electricity companies. And so I took some superannuation out and paid for a system and set that up and then thought, we've got more electricity than we can use, so what are we going to do? So then we bought an electric car to use the excess electricity that we couldn't export back to the grid. And that means our main transport is free. There's no running costs on an electric car, there's no service costs, the fuel's free. So when you add all these things up, it's a lot of money that we're not needing to earn. And the main expense after that is wine. Yeah. <laughs> so, I haven't got around to making my own yet. <laughs> I would like to, but I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't be prepared to put too much effort into it. But I would like to do it the old Italian way, where you just throw some grapes into a barrel or, mm. and um, let it ferment naturally. Try you that make out. a beer. Yeah, I don't buy bought beer anymore because it's crap compared to what I make myself. 
And Rayco had this dream of setting up the Harvest Exchange. We'd be able to swap excess produce from the home garden with other people and we'd be able to get things that we couldn't normally get as fresh food. We got away from buying fruit and vegetable in the fruit and vegetable shop to just eating fresh in-season food, and which is so much nicer uh, and flavoursome. When we moved here, Ray kind of wanted to do that and I was pretty sceptical about it, but she pushed and pushed and finally got established. It's not that hard. It just bring your excess food and knowledge in just one hour in once in a week, uh, once in a month. That's enough for get going. And interestingly, there's a woman there who came to one of our early swaps and copied it. So there's been a really healthy harvest exchange in Vivon Bay now for about two years. Mm. And there is one starting in Kings Cove. So you've really started a trend here? Yeah, it started in the mainland and just copied. There's no organisation as such. So no AGM, no committee meeting, just get together once in a month. It's now in what, the third three, year? Three years, And yeah. we typically get 20 people or more once a month and just get all this amazing stuff from other people for free, like whether it's food or vegetables or, or other things related to food production. So that's fantastic. The next stage from that is setting up a proper community garden which we've just got permission from the council to use some land. So. The friendship and the community garden will be uh, more, not really the food production, more the community get together. If you play footy or netball or have a kids in a school, they have a sort of community. But other than that, they don't have one at the moment. So the garden will get together for people who have a mental health or lonely. Some reason they're living by themselves. But if there is a reason to go to a garden, they can connect to other people. <laughs> I really want to ground up by community, not ready-made things. And if someone had second-hand something I would like to use, that sort of belong to someone. If you buy, it doesn't belong to anyone. Who's helping you to do this garden? Is it just you two or is there a group of you? Yeah, so there's about 20 people. We'll have to make a uh, core group committee out of that and then maybe we'll have some other groups for specific tasks to just, you know, so that everyone gets an opportunity to to contribute in a way that they want to. How spread out are people here? Well, in Kangaroo Island in general, there's about one person per square kilometre mm. and there are four major towns, which means about two-thirds of people on the island live outside of the towns. And, the, you know, our nearest living neighbour here that's always here would be a few kilometres away. The country life, you know, living out in the country in relative isolation, people get up to all sorts of capers and it's yeah. slowly disappearing as we get invaded by holiday homeowners and tourists. Yeah, okay. And not, not that we've been here that long, but we've made really good friends with all the local people that have been here multi-generations. Anybody that's had land on the island pretty well up until now has a common sort of outlook. And if you can get people together, you'll find that even people you think are extremely opposite to you, about 90% of their outlook is in common with yours. How long did you say you've lived here for? Uh, about four and a half years. So you've moved pretty quick in four and a half years. You seem to have really set up a community, a way to at least communicate with people. You've set up the swap. You're setting up a garden. It's pretty active. What, what's what been the driver there? We've just been welcomed by everyone. You know, the island's kind of divided into four groups. There are the long-term families. Some of them are in fifth, sixth generation. And also there's a sort of subset in there that's the soldier settlers that came after World War One and World War Two. They're a sort of special case, but they're the most conservative landowners and farmers. And then there's 
tree changers like us, which have mostly come in the last 20 years. There's the business people. There's also a group of people that are sort of dropouts from society. They've come here to escape. That might be a lifestyle or a health issue. And we've just felt totally welcomed and made friends instantly. And, you know, sometimes I'm inclined to be a bit of a shit stirrer, but then I've had people say, look, they need people like me here. I don't want to upset anyone. I don't want to get offside with a, an important community member on Dudley Peninsula. And so occasionally I'll ask, you know, how they feel about what I'm doing. And that's the answer I get. No, they're pretty happy to have us here. And when you say shit stirrer, what do you mean by that? Oh, well, I've been involved in quite a lot of environmental activism, not in the sense of standing in front of bulldozers. We haven't had that opportunity, unfortunately. But uh, when the previous state government signed a, a contract with the Australian Walking Company to put luxury accommodation in Flinders Chase National Park, I was on the core group of an organisation called Eco Action, which has legal standing, and we sued the minister and the Australian Walking Company and the Tasmanian Walking Company. We raised $100,000 through crowdfunding. We spent that on pre-trial hearings and we didn't actually get to trial, but it stopped them doing what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. That took about 18 months to pan out. And then there's been other things like up to do with parks and tourism. There's some people on the island that think, you know, just do it, just develop everything. You know, we need the jobs, we need the money. And, and you sort of think, well, a lot of development doesn't actually bring jobs if you exclude cleaning and waiting mm-hmm. jobs. You know, it doesn't actually create careers for people on Kangaroo Island. And my view is, well, just think about what you're asking for because you may not want it when you get it. And it's ongoing. COVID's actually magnified the pressure on the island tenfold. People wanting to escape Sydney or Brisbane or Melbourne. Land just went like that. All the land that had been on the market for years just suddenly disappeared. Property values have doubled, tripled. People buying land unseen because they couldn't travel here. So obviously people like us who've come here for the peace and solitude are worried that it's we, we're going to be driven out. People who've lived there for their whole lives or multi-generationals, they won't be able to afford to own a house or even rent a place. In terms of expanding tourism here, if you want to get extra workers, there's nowhere for them to live. Yeah. There are people living in tents and caravans. But if you go around and talk about that, it's not very, you're not, you don't make yourself popular. <laughs> so I write a fair few letters to the paper and get involved with politicians. I do hope, in a way, that before this island is destroyed, people get pulled back down to earth a bit. A, a little island like this can't really withstand much development. The other thing that's unique about the island is it's about 30% of it is still natural vegetation and it's probably one of the few places on, on the planet where the vegetation's actually increased since the 80s. Part of that's through plantation but a lot of it's through conservation efforts. Ultimately is that why you moved down here from Adelaide? We love the Flinders, we love the isolation, we love the outback and remoteness but we lived in a, in a terrific spot in the city very close to the parklands And we used to forage in the parklands. We'd get pine nuts, we'd get kindling for the fire and all sorts of stuff. We could go over there in the evening on a hot night and just lie on the cool grass and look at the stars. But it was near a major highway and I reckon in the 10 years we lived in this place, I reckon the amount of grit and dust, black dust, that used to come over into our courtyard doubled. And I got to the point where I couldn't be bothered sweeping it out all the time. And then you start thinking, well, all the food we're growing in our garden, we're eating that's been watered with water that's fallen on a roof that's collected that, mostly diesel particulates and, and tyre rubber. Do we really want to be eating that? 
I personally don't think that what I eat is probably going to have much impact on the rest of my life. I'm an adult. I'm, you know, I'm in my 60s. It's probably more important for children and, and teenagers in terms of that in their formative years that they, if they're exposed to pathogens and so on. But, but I just don't want it. I mean, I just don't want it. I don't. We don't want to buy food at a supermarket because when you read the labels and you see that there's all this stuff in there that you've never heard of before, you can't pronounce, and your parents certainly wouldn't have known about. And you think, what's it in there for? Baking bread secret of good food is it's only ever got four or five ingredients and you know for bread it's flour salt water and yeast, yeast. Mm. and when you go and buy food now and it's all industrially processed and it's got 20 30 ingredients in it a lot of it is not there for your benefit it's for the benefit of the company that's vlogging it to you mm-hmm. to keep it marketable to keep the color nice and bright so food was a lot to do with it Oh, and also we had a chooks uh, in a small yard, and they're free ranged in the city. But it's sort of it's a grey area, or you can't have a chook or rooster in uh, in our council in the city. So sort of we need a bigger yard for them, and then for us too. So needed a space for what would like to do a growing a little food for us and space for chooks and us. Yeah, so that makes sense too. I get very anxious about going to the city. We go maybe once every three or four months to stock up on things we can't get here, mostly stuff from Central Market. We get bulk coffee, bulk muesli, bulk flour, bulk organic things. A lot of stuff we've worked out how to get here now and it's I get very anxious about it and I'm probably a mess for a week before we go because I just don't want to be there. The whole idea of how a city works is just so foreign to me that I don't really want to be there. I, I just It just doesn't make sense. I just think it's all wrong. I can connect people more here than Adelaide. I worked in city. I had a friends, but I didn't know much about neighbours. I didn't know much about other than family and friends. But here we involve all sort of different activities. So we know about a couple hundred people through that and like-minded people, not just we know them. Yeah, I can connect more because I came from different country to Adelaide. But here people knows me because it's a small community and if you keep going a community activity, they recognise me. That is pretty nice feeling. Most people know Reiko even if she's never met them. Through the community garden proposal or through the exchange or through the walking group or through birding or whatever. Can you list all of the things you're involved in here? Because I keep hearing <laughs> drops of sure. the things that you do and it would be great to hear it all together. Sure. We're members of EcoAction. We're a volunteer organisation doing weeding, tree planting and so on. I'm on the consultative committee for Kangaroo Island for Parks SA. I'm on the working group for uh, walking trail development from Penishaw to Cape Willoughby, which will extend the Heisen Trail. I'm in the community working group for the Penishaw desalination plant. I'm involved in the Cape Willoughby Tourism Precinct redevelopment. There's the community garden, the swap, the harvest exchange, the walking group. These are things that are Rayco's creations mostly. So the walking groups once a week, Thursday mornings. The harvest exchange is once a month on a Saturday morning. I involved a spinners weavers women's group in Kingscourt. Lately, we go into a musical night. We play the music. So that's different people too. Rayco's learning or learn to spin uh, fibres, so sheep and alpaca and so on into wool and getting to the stage where she's going to knit all our clothes out of our own fibres. Yeah, that's 
what I'm doing. So is your intention to be completely environmentally sustainable? We want to live in a community, but not by ourselves. It's impossible. We like simple from the garden food, don't buy a package food. If we swap with friend, there's no package. We would barely fill a rubbish bin with our purchased rubbish in a year because we don't buy new things when we don't buy supermarket food. I just don't want to generate rubbish. I did a carbon audit a few years back when we were living in the city and I convinced myself that we were probably within the three-tonne limit. Now, I don't know if you've heard of... Somebody once worked out that if everybody wants to have earth-sustainable, the limit of carbon emissions per person is three tonnes. The average Australian is well over 20 tonnes. It doesn't really drive me to do that, but that satisfies me because we don't want to impose a bigger footprint on the planet than is our fair share. We live pretty bloody well. We've got all the mod cons. We've got nice big flat screen TV and surround sound and blah, 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 computers everywhere. And we don't miss out on anything. We tend not to buy very much new. A lot of stuff is given to us or traded or bartered. We actually get a lot of pleasure out of repurposing, not recycling, repurposing things and and making things out of secondhand materials. And everything in this place has a backstory as to how it got here and where it came from and what it did before in a previous life. We really love that. I love your house and I love all the art and I love... You can see that things have stories and I keep trying to look over your head at the pictures. Interesting thing, the house is actually just a shed. Originally it didn't have any lining, so it was just a corrugated iron roof and it's actually a timber shed. It's now got iron cladding on the outside over the timber. It's had ceiling and insulation. It's actually a pretty nice place climate-wise, so it's, it's got a big, thick concrete slab floor which is a thermal heat bank so the temperature inside is very stable and very even and it's lovely. When you go to a bathroom have a look there's no plastic. That's actually one of our objectives is to live Mm. without plastic Uh, but I have to say we can't throw any plastic away. However we come upon plastic it has to live an extra life at least. We'd love not to have any plastic here but we can't throw away plastic so there are things that we use that are plastic. When we bought the house, we just decided we wanted to go off-grid. Probably the only big investment we've made mm. is the solar off-grid solar system, and it's, it has been really good. We've never, it's never had an outage in five years. There's never been mains water here, so we've just increased the tank storage. We do have a well, almost in, inexhaustible well at the end of the property. We don't have enough water to be not worry about it, but close to enough, so we're saving it. We got through last summer, which... Rain took a, was a bit late breaking and we still had about maybe 20%. Too close for comfort as far as I'm concerned. I'd like to have 50% <laughs> spare. But we do ration water, but we've put in about 15 fruit trees in oh, the last yeah, yeah. year. And so we worry about that because you're depending on not having a long, hot, dry summer. We'd have to cart water if it got to that. We used it bottle gas. We do use a bit of gas for cooking and it's tricky to think how to eliminate that. I mean, we're like, I'm about to buy an induction cooker so that we don't have to use gas to boil a saucepan or something. And we do have electric oven. We actually have an electric oven outside so we can bake in summer. It keeps the heat outside of the house. You make it sound so easy. Why don't more people live like this? I'm active in a couple of forums and people don't believe I don't have a lot of rubbish or they don't believe that I can that we can live with just solar power or an electric car. And, you know, it's infuriating because we're doing it, but no, 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 you must be telling a lie. I don't know. People are blind to possibilities. I think probably lay the blame at the marketing because there's no money to be made in a lifestyle like ours. We're not spending money making somebody else rich. 
when we visit friends and you turn on the hot water in the, in the bathroom and you wait 30 seconds and then you wait another 30 seconds and then you might get some hot water, all that water that's flowed before the hot water arrives, that's water that's wasted and it's also energy that's wasted because you're heating up the pipes. When you turn the tap off, the pipes cool down and the next time you turn the tap on, you've got to heat them all up again. We don't waste that energy and that water because we you know we can't really afford to but it actually makes our life much better i read the article about the one guy in the 80s he was living on the two solar panels in japan and he was living according to the sun when the sun up there he did a washing and if it's not reading a book oh that's nice life we don't do much when it's not sun there we're just not listening much music, not watching TV. We're just, according to uh, weather we live in, and we have a lot of woofers. They're 20s, 30s, and they're not doing straight away anything. But in the 20 years, oh, I went to the Kangal Island, and it just sort of stick in your head. That's why we do things and help acts and we, well, we get a, a lot of from them too. I'm going to jump in here just to clarify that Woofing is a platform that connects volunteers with people who live on organic farms. And so a volunteer will stay and work on someone's property and the host will feed and accommodate them and usually teach them a skill as well. It's on this platform that I found John and Reiko in the first place. I don't care whether people agree or <laughs> what, but I enjoy showing people what we do and I hope that they take some of that away. And it may not change anything immediately, but it's just about broadening your outlook and thinking about things and what you do and the impact of it. And is that the motivation for woofers? It's not necessarily because you need help, it's more the connection or is it a bit of both? Or We've never run out of things that need doing, ever. But we also enjoyed the company and we'd normally host them like they were friends and we'd try and find out what people are interested in and or what skills they would like to use or what skills they would like to learn. And if we can accommodate that, we do to the extent we can and then we'll take them on our walks, we'll take them to the exchange, we'll take them to the neighbours and we'll take them down the coast, take them to our conservation property and just basically in, hopefully enjoy their company and they're, while they're enjoying ours. And it usually works out pretty well. Yeah. I think we've pretty much decided we're not going to travel for tourism. We'll travel to Japan because that's where Reiko's mum and dad are. Mm-hmm. And I love Japan. But all the places I wanted to go that I haven't gone, I'm not going to go now. I just think it's not ethical to be travelling just for fun. The island itself is quite big. <laughs> we haven't been to West End much. <laughs> no, because a long way. <laughs> Oh, electric car doesn't go there, so you have to think about it. Um, we used to go to camping, but this house itself is like a camping, similar experience, so we don't do camping. When you open the front door, it's just nature outside. This podcast is me figuring out what it is that brings people connection and meaning into their life. How would you describe what meaning and connection is for you? We have a lot of freedom to do what we want to do. And for some reason or other, people like the things that we do. You know, So we find friends easily and we find support easily. I don't know that we consciously behave in a particular way to achieve that, just the way it's worked out. A long, long time ago, well before I met Reiko, I read somewhere that a gift is not a gift if there's any strings attached. So that started to change the way I looked at life a long time ago, that 
if you give something away, it's not a gift if you have any expectation attached to it. So to give something away is just to give something away and walk away and not worry about it anymore. And I started to do that. And what I found was that I was showered with gifts from other people. I can't put any logic or rhyme or reason behind that, how that works, but it does. And you you might call it karma, if you like. And the valuable things that we have in our lives have been gifts from people who've wanted to give us something. And again, if you don't accept it, there's an onus once you live that way to accept gifts as well, and also with no strings attached. So that's sometimes quite hard. People give us things a lot. I want to have alpaca. It's on the list, alpaca, but like like $1,000 each. So we didn't buy alpaca. And one day, John's friends, do you want alpaca? <laughs> John said, yes. How do you know? Oh, well, we just got too many. And two came free, but took like five years. I could give you hundreds of examples of things in this house that have been given to us. Funnily enough, occasionally someone will think we're really wealthy because we have all these possessions. We also look after things. We don't throw things out. We, we make them last. We are very, very lucky. We, you know, we live a good life, I think. We don't lack for anything. I guess when I think of meaning and connection, to me it's this idea of connecting to something kind of outside of yourself, you know, that idea of living consciously, you know, a living in the moment or a living for something else. You're right, and that's the joy when the sun rises, which is something you often don't see in the city. We are connected with the environment. You know, over the time we've been together, we've sort of evolved into eating seasonal food, mm-hmm. fresh seasonal food, so we don't go and buy avocados or tomatoes in winter. And that's all about being connected with the environment, the planet, and so much pleasure. You know, you think you get sick of something when you have overabundance. I remember we ate, we lived on broad beans for about three months once because we planted too many. <laughs> and you think you get sick of them, and yeah, I'd had enough by the time it finished. But it's such a joy the next year when they come back. So having that seasonal change, well, we find very rewarding and very meaningful. And that's part of stepping outside of the normal, you know, industrial city landscape where everybody can choose anything at any time, anywhere, and you just sort of think it's silly. I actually had a conversation with a friend in Sydney. Something came up about tomatoes. And I had said, well, you know, they're seasonal. And my friend was like, what? And I was like, (laughs) well, yeah. And she's like, no, you can get them all the time. Like, well, I know, but they're grown in greenhouses somewhere. Like, they're actually a seasonal fruit. And I think, and I'm someone that lives not far from that in the sense that, you know, I couldn't tell you how many millimetres of rain we've had in Sydney. I know a lot. Whereas you're probably, you know, you said you knew when your water tank was down to 20%. So even just being more aware of what's happening in the environment, Mm. to me, I think is something that I probably feel a yearning for or missing out on, you know. Like, I know it's raining because I have to change my clothes. Yeah. But... It's, yeah, it's that real disconnection from what's happening around me, I think. I used to work in office and I didn't know if it's cold or warm because air-conditioned. It's ridiculous. Yeah, no, I know that feeling as well of uh, particularly in winter, going to work in the morning when it's still dark and then I'd be leaving when it's dark and because, you know, city living, like I wouldn't even leave the office for lunch Mm. and I'd get to the end of the day and I'd be like, I couldn't tell you what the weather was like today. I couldn't tell you if it was sunny, cold, rainy, and it's shocking and depressing. 
think. I know. So five days, you, you don't know. And then only two days a weekend, you know the weather. And the office environment, it was, oh, I, I had enough. And I, my eyesight getting worse because I had a three screens in front of me. And maybe I need a fourth one. And oh, no, no, no. I thought I should leave. <laughs> yeah, and it was a good decision to leave the office job. In fact, I was anticipating would be more isolated than we actually are because we've just got so many connections in the community that we we get out a lot more often than I thought we would and we see a lot more people. Do you think you could live in this way if you had to work five days a week? Do you think it's something, a way, a lifestyle that only people who are not in that kind of work can do? No, I don't think so. I can't make a sourdough bread, so you need a time off to have a slow... It's same same as garden. You have to look after when it's needed, not regular time. No, I couldn't do this with a five-day job. But if I did have a five-day job and we lived like this, it would be a case of paying someone else to do it mm. for you. And there are people who live like that, but it's just not how we want to live. For people like myself, where I think I would love to live in a different way, you know, I would love to do something like this, to leave the city, to leave my job, to make my own food, grow my own food. What's the first step? The first step is to start. Uh, probably a year or two into our relationship, we had changed the way we live so much that we wouldn't have thought it possible at the beginning to make those changes. And, and we've now done that about five times over. The horizon just keeps moving as you do more. You just start with the simple things. Probably one of the first things is to buy in-season locally produced food, preferably organic, without packaging, or take your own paper bags. Kai, you are already doing that. You already step one to see us. So expose to other people what they do and do the little step. But you're doing already. I'm advising people traveling around by themselves and see other people. So how did you pick us? Oh, I look. I must have looked at maybe 20 or so Profile. profiles on mm. Woofing. South Australia or...? Oh, yeah, I also looked in Queensland. I also mm. looked in Victoria. Mm-hmm. I looked at lots of different places. and okay. I was looking specifically for people living off-grid, mm. but you went through a really um, long, detailed, quite beautiful description of the land and the way that you described it, I was like, oh, that's people that are, like, paying attention to what's around them and appreciating the beauty and... You know, other profiles, they might just say, you know, we've got a bed in this room and here's what we'll get you to do, which is fine. Like, it it is a trading service. But the fact that you took the time to actually appreciate what's going on around you, I was like, that's nice. Like, it was almost poetic and beautiful. and And it gave me a sense of, for you, it's not just about, you know, I need someone to do X, Y and Z for you. It's about, I want you to appreciate the beauty around me as well. I found it really beautiful. That profile is actually a filter. It's deliberately written both in a sense we're preaching we're proud of what we've done and we we want to show our values and even in the photographs i've been careful to compose those photographs to give hints about literature about music about art and as i said it is a filter people that are sensitive to those things will see that even if it's subconscious and select themselves to contact us and people to whom those things are not important probably don't get those hooks It's a beautiful morning. Sunrise was sensational. I got out of my camper early to watch it from the back of their unassuming dark blue house, which is up a slope. So I'm standing here looking out over their netted vegetable gardens and out to 
farmed land in the distance where dozens of kangaroos are gathering for breakfast. Today I'm going to spend time in the garden with John and Reiko. We'll see what the ground's going to give them for dinner this week. Mostly I'm wanting to see how full a garden needs to be in order to feed two people and really just how hard it would be to live off grid and as environmentally conscious as they are. First up, we're checking out the fruit and vegetable garden. Also, oh, this is the orchard. We have a navel orange and a, is it a, called a ruby grapefruit? They're a beautiful eating grapefruit. Banana, passion fruit, apricot, plum. satsuma plum, yes, apples, two apples, a couple of fajoas, peach. And then we've got natrons over here and lemon quince uh, around the front of the house. And we've failed so far with avocado. I see lots of jams in your future. Then John and Reiko show me around the paddock where they're planting trees to regenerate a barren, clear stretch of land. This land was totally barren, been completely cleared. So there wasn't a tree here uh, 25 years ago. Younger ones which we've planted. You've done well, there's a lot of trees there. Yeah, probably a couple of thousand along there. There's a sort of idea in Japan that if you want to plant something, get a handful of rice and throw it over your shoulder and then plant where the rice falls. Because a lot of revegetation projects look quite unnatural. I had been most excited about getting to know the alpacas. I thought like many animals, feeding them would make them like me. It didn't. In fact, they disliked me so much that Reiko had to send me away. These are alpacas that are from a breeder who decided not to use these for breeding. So they'd been adjusted at a friend's place and they haven't had any human interaction. So they're very slow to get friendly, in fact. They were friendlier before we had them shorn the first time, <laughs> which is not a pleasant experience for alpacas and they've never forgiven us. And how often do you actually shear them? These hadn't been shorn for many years when we received them, so we've only shorn them once, and I think probably normally about 12 months or 18 months between shearing. Okay. Is that going to be enough for both of your clothes in the future? Quite possibly. We produce a lot of wool. <laughs> We spent a fair bit of time in and around the chicken coop, which is where I later found out that snakes like to live. Unlike the alpacas, the chickens actually liked me and let me spend a fair bit of time with them. So how come we don't feed the chickens inside? How come we feed them out here? Uh, because mice. Chooks, 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 chooks. Did you collect the uh, snake skin yourself? Yeah, we've, Reiko found that in the chicken coop one morning. And I'd been in there only like 30 minutes before and it wasn't there. So a snake had gone through. Apparently they, they take a couple of hours to get the skin off and they sort of peel it off from their mouth backwards and eventually it comes off at the tail. So a snake must have been on its way through and just left it behind in the coop. Because that is not a small snake. No, they're, they're about a metre and a half. Oh. They're quite big. We've got a lot of snakes and we just live with them. Yeah. They, don't, they don't bother us and we don't bother them. Do they hurt the chickens? I've actually had snakes on the roost with the chooks. Oh. I've had them coiled up underneath the chooks, <laughs> with the chooks sitting on top of them, giving them free warmth. <laughs> they coexist. The snakes come for the mice, not the yeah. chickens or the okay. eggs. We have a problem with goannas coming for eggs, and the goannas attack the chickens. We've probably lost four or five chickens to goanna attacks, but okay. not okay. from snakes. getting ready to leave John and Rakers now. I thought it would be a rough shack 
on a rugged property and I'd be doing lots of hard work and some serious labour. But it felt more like a holiday, like a relaxing, nature-filled holiday. The house was beautiful. It honestly, you weren't wanting for anything. And as far as work goes, don't think feeding the animals and pottering in the garden was, I'm sure I was very helpful, but um, yeah, it wasn't exactly back-breaking labour I thought that I would be doing. Yeah, I, I wonder what it would be like if there was, I don't know, a leak in the water tank or the, a shack needed to be built or, you know, I know that they had a few issues with, you know, possums and insects and things getting at their fruit and veg, so, you know, I wasn't there for that. Maybe when times are tough, they're really tough and then when they're not, it's quite relaxing and quite lovely. So I feel like I don't have the skills to, to set it up to start it. And, you know, I know Ray Cody did a course in, in how to spin wool, but I mean, I wouldn't have even thought of getting clothes from alpacas in the first place and then figuring out how to keep them alive and then how to shear them and then how to spin them and then how to sew them. To me, it, it takes a lot of skills that I just don't think I have, but I guess you learn, right? Anyway, I had a lovely time in paradise at John and Rayco's on Kangaroo Island, living like a king, not working particularly hard, though I'm sure the chickens loved me. The alpacas hated me, but I think the chickens loved me. Hey, how you doing? After staying with John hey, and Rayco, I really wanted to call my friend Kate, who is on a similar journey to them, trying to reduce her impact on the environment. You already met her partner Lisa in episode six of this podcast. Been meaning to get in touch to see how it's all been going. There's one couple that I really wanted to talk to you about. So yeah. I went to see Rayco and John because they have decided to live off grid. So oh, yeah. they grow their own food, they use solar power, they have an electric car, they use water tanks. They even have alpacas so they can start making their own clothes. Yeah. And it just really reminded me of you and Lisa because I would say that you two are the most environmentally conscious people that I know. Yeah, we do try to be as environmentally conscious that we can be. Living off grid, I guess that's like a whole other level. But yeah, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Well, do you think you ever would? I can't see it in the new, near future, but never say never. Like, I, I thought of you two a lot when I was there. I think the next stage for us is to try to go all electric and then maybe try to upgrade the solar battery, so... Because that's how they did it. They just did it in, in steps. Like, like the alpacas, for example, are new, and I think they're similar with the plastic where they're not just throwing all their plastic out. They're, like, working towards it, like they're not bringing in any more... I know Lisa wants to make plastic stuff. She had a plan to compress plastic all down so that she could start making things out of it. Because yeah. you guys make your own soap, you make your own washing powders. Like... I guess it's kind of just realised that you can kind of make anything if you kind of research what they've already made out of. So she started looking into all the soaps and shampoos and things are made of to reduce our plastic and... Um, kind of just buys those core ingredients and then start making those things. We recycle, try to reduce our plastic. We've got a rainwater tank, solar panels. We've got a little veggie patch. We compost all of our food scraps. We've got three compost bins. We like to plant as 
many trees and plants as we can. We buy secondhand. We try to fix things. We try to use what we have rather than buy new stuff. Lisa sews so she can make clothes and fix clothes. Yeah, it's handy having someone who is so good at making things. She has far more skills than I do. My skills will be useless in the apocalypse. Maybe your well, skill uh, is finding a partner who can yeah. survive the apocalypse. But you guys, like you, yeah. you live in the city. You live in a very populated suburb of Sydney. It's not like you're, you know, on a huge property and you're still manage to do what you can in you know metropolitan Sydney. I think that's what happens when you have a kid you kind of realize oh wow what's happening with this world and what's the world that this child is going to grow up in and so that really kind of spurred us on into doing as much as we can for a better future Mm. for him and then I guess in that sense then yeah we've sent letters to MPs and participated in marches and whatever else in regards to climate action. But, yeah, I think if you're at least doing things, then you can, I think, just find it easier to live in the moment knowing that you're doing as much as you can. I've been inspired. Again, me being me just does that typical, well, that's it. I'm like Claire and I have to pack up and, and move off grid and, and live in some remote area. But mm. then, you know, I think about you two and I'm like, actually, I don't have to be extreme again in life. No, no, you don't have to. Sounds lovely, though, what they're doing. But then also it's pretty nice being at home as well and just trying to make your home and how you live as sustainable and joyful as you can. This podcast was created by me, Kai Noonan. Audio production by Harry Hughes. Script editing and advising by Adam Hughes. Check us out on Instagram. Just search Towards Connection.